Vix the Convince. Welcome to the Vix the Convince podcast. Here's your host, NewSpark founder, Paul Mosenson. Hello out there, it's Paul Mosenson, founder of NewSpark Consulting. Welcome to the podcast, Fix the Convince, marketing optimization. We discussed an interesting phrase today that you should be aware of. It's called revenue enablement. And my guest today is Stephen Diorio. Hi, Steve. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today? Really good. I'm excited to have this chat. Great, great. This will be interesting, especially for UC-level audiences out there to understand this whole process of revenue enablement and optimization and getting the most value for your marketing and sales efforts. Let me give you a little background on who Stephen DiOrio is. He runs a, a website called revenueenablement.org. That's .org. It's the Revenue Enablement Institute. He's an established authority on go-to market innovation with 30 years experience helping hundreds of sales and marketing leaders use technology to grow profits faster. Like we mentioned, he leads the Institute, Revenue Enablement Institute, of world-class academics, experts, and practitioners. His mission is to provide a new generation of growth leaders with the management tools, skills, and capabilities they need to lead the transformation of sales, marketing, and service in order to accelerate revenue growth and adapt to the new buying reality. So in particular, he's been very successful proving the financial contribution of sales and marketing investment to firm value and profit growth, which leads more rational investment and allocations of growth resources, people, data, technology, and brands. I made all that up myself, didn't I? Actually, no. It was a, but that's what he does, and I'm very impressed with his work, and you will be too. So I have a number of questions for you, Steve, and let's uh, get down to it. Revenue enablement. What exactly is that term? Because that's fairly new to me. And why a C-level leader should be aware of the concept? Well, that's great. Um, thanks for bringing that up. So, yeah, revenue enablement could be a buzzword. A lot of people out there in the software industry are trying to create a new category where they can stand out. I'm not really all about that. You know, in my 30 years of experience, um, the real issue is the board and the C-level understanding about where growth comes from. And there's a lot of energy around tactics, A-B testing, taglines, campaign-specific things, the things you do very well, Paul. Uh, but where the real problem starts is with, where, when you're at, with the allocators of capital and resource and you think about growth and creating firm value, uh, organizations are terrible at that. So your notion of C-level, uh, the marketer, has a vision for brand, which in firms like Miller Coors is 70% of the value of the company on the balance sheet. Yet nobody in finance or the rest of the team even treats it like that. Uh, they manage buildings and factories really, really well, uh, but they've got this, 70, this brand that's worth billions and billions of dollars, and they don't manage it like that. And the consequences are severe. I'll give you a real example. Kraft yeah. General Foods had to take a 22 billion dollar write down on their balance sheet because the craft brand collapsed 
Uh, and why did it collapse? Uh, they didn't manage it, invest it. They didn't even think it was an asset. So here I have an asset. You know, you, you won't, if the roof on your house leaks, you fix it because you got to pay a mortgage and you don't want your house to get ruined. But people don't treat brands this way. So I'll roll it back to your question. C-level executives, sales, marketing, and service. They are now one to the customer. And yes, we'll talk about how they're coming together. But more importantly, we cannot rationally or economically allocate resources to growth strategy. We are incredibly good at allocating resources to search terms, but we are terrible at allocating resources to big growth programs. And, and that's a bit of an issue. Um, let's say hi to my wife. Um, Hello, so, there. Uh, so um, in, that, in that regard, uh, that's why we're fighting the battle at the board level. Uh, there's plenty of people who can add MarTech, optimize campaigns, optimize websites. That's valuable, but it kind of pales in comparison in terms of doing the right thing. And when you think about growth and transformation, it's really a board level resource allocation decision. Do we believe that the brand is, is, is driving our growth? And in the case of Cisco, uh, they think the brand is 20% of the value of the firm and they invest in that branding. Pepsi as well. Other organizations say, no, we're not about brands, we're about relationship or shelf space. And that's a good decision if you're a retailer or if you are you know, a company like Lenovo that's got good trusted relationships. But you need to allocate resources against this. Marketing is just a general mix. It's really spaghetti against the wall. And the budgets are based on legacy or perception or just this thing, I gotta try everything. Whereas, you know, at the level of the operator or the campaign, we're quite good. We're making huge mistakes at the board level. And we don't even understand how AI, analytics, data can really work. I'll give you an analogy. Um, mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. think their growth engine is a Formula One race car and you're driving around corners at 250 miles an hour. And the reality is, after spending 11% of their budgets on analytics, after buying, what is it, Paul, 7,041 different MarTech solutions, nobody can prove the return on CRM, data, and analytics, much less AI and some of the futures things. Not, it's not that these things don't have value, but I defy you to show me a CFO who says, oh, I understand that I'm getting this much return on data and that my brand is driving this much future cash flow. And in the app, I, know I can do that for my supply chain, for my factory, or a lot of parts of my business, but I cannot do it at all for my growth investments, despite 30 years of CRM and all these analysts from all these places. Uh, talk to a C-level executive, you're gonna get that answer. Sorry, Paul, I cut you off. No, that's okay. I mean, you bring up some interesting points here. Since marketing 101, you know, there's a balance of tactics and strategy, right? And we love tactics, but what's the strategy, you know? And, and what, what's the brand experience? What's the customer experience? How do people, you know, portray you from a big picture? And, and, and so you're, you're preaching to the choir about the big picture and what it means. I mean, well, I, 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 yeah. I love that. Like one of my favorite executives in the industry is Elisa Fink, 
who's the former CMO of Tableau. And she has a famous quote that she says, there's no A-B testing for growth strategy. And, then, and the reason I talk about and talk to CMOs is I, all I do is host forums where CMOs and CSOs talk to each other. That's what the Institute's about. We get academics, CEOs, heads of sales and marketing having this conversation because that's the conversation that has to happen. And it's funny, you get them up on stage and they mouth all those words. Customer experience is driving my issue. It's all about the brand. But if you asked under the hood, what are you investing? Why are you investing? What is your return to shareholder? No one can answer those questions. So again, sorry for cutting you off. No, it's good. That's you're, right. You're, now, that's right. The, the, you're fortunate enough. The, the tactical side of the world is the complete opposite. It's over-optimized. You know, it, it's fantastic. Uh, but the two need to be marrying up because we're allocating resources rationally within search, but we're not allocating them across growth strategies very well at all. Yeah. Speaking of buzzwords, I just saw a sidebar here. One of my... I don't know, maybe I'm a little jaded on it, but if I hear digital transformation, right? Like, what does that mean, right? And I used to tell people like, uh, show me the scope of work. What does that mean? What are you implementing, right? So that's part of it, but the, the, that definition kind of sways depending on who you're talking to. I, I, think, I think you're getting at the root cause. And, and it's a vocab, I think it's a vocabulary issue. For example, um, you could say an arcane word like EBITDA, earnings before interest and tax. And no one argues with you. It's price. It's defined by FASB. It's existing. You, you say the word brand uh, or crazy new words like brand momentum, which means nothing, uh, or brand, you know, uh, you know it's, it, there's only one thing, brand purpose, that has value. Uh, market share. The janitor could walk into the boardroom and has an opinion on what, what market share is. Nobody is overruling the CFO or the head of quality control when they throw out acronyms because there's a precision in vocabulary that everyone accepts. And marketing has a horrible vocabulary problem. <laughs> Even uh, now, there's a huge debate between what the hell is a marketing qualified lead and a sales accepted lead? And why are we even fighting over these stupid things? What we should be fighting about is relationship health. And let's come up with metrics and a vocabulary for what's a 10 in terms of relationship health. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, um, you, you're getting at the core. Vocabulary is the real issue. And growth suffers dramatically from that at the board level. Uh, and I think it gets back to your buzzword comment. Right, right. One more sidebar, if you don't mind. When people tell me, like, what reports should I be showing? What am I, sh what am I analyzing here? Said, you know what, your, your report is going to be, what does your boss want to see? You know, what does yes. your boss want to see? Yes, Paul. <laughs> they they sure. want to, you know, it's not like, oh, we got new keywords and negatives and like that. No, no, it's... <laughs> It's, you know, especially when you do display campaigns, I know we're going into the weeds a little bit and, and social and things like that. And we talk about few conversions and assisted conversions and, and frequency and buyer's journey. It, it all comes together. For, you know, if you're just measuring on the last click, you know, you're losing a lot. And you know what, and you know what else I see a lot, Steve, is people forget about lifetime value, right? And, and putting that into the the calculations of success. You, you, could, you couldn't <laughs> be more wrong. And you know, by the way, that's a structural problem. So, you know, one of my day jobs is I, uh, I'm a fellow at Wharton and we teach uh, a great class on using analytics to grow. And um, there's a professor there, uh, Raghu Yander. Sorry, Raghu, I said your name wrong. Um, 
And he saw, it's a structural problem. All of our data is organized around products. It's not even arbitrary. Everything is structured around products, not horizontally around customers. And it's unbelievable how this structural problem has basically impeded our ability. Nothing matters but customer lifetime value uh, because that then leads to firm value. But structurally, functionally, we have product managers and they have to justify their existence. There is no customer managers. And I know you got those things like a chief customer officer, but that's all hot air. You know, operationally, it's still BS. Uh, I guess we're supposed to keep it clean here. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I got to tell you We're allowed to be opinionated. So. But, but I got I to tell you something. You, it sounds smart, but it's profound what you just said, Paul, which is, you know, we just are not organized. Our data isn't structured that way. There is no report that goes to the board on customer lifetime value. Yeah, so the airlines get it and some of those folks. But in general, it's a whole different way of thinking. And it sounds so trite. But operationally, it's, it's a roadblock. And in a SaaS world and a relationship world, everything is about customer lifetime value. And uh, analytics don't work unless it's optimized against customer lifetime value. You know? And so I, I, I hate to, you're raising great points that seem simple, but they are profound. For sure. Kind of leads up to question number two, actually. Marketing accountability. Does, you mentioned that a lot on your website. Describe that process and the key elements to consider with marketing accountability. And that well, you ever watch Monty Python? It's oh the, yeah, it, it, it's it's marketing accountability is either the ultimate fool's errand or the holy grail, and uh, it's alchemy. It's taking marketing inputs to which, to your point, are somewhat subjective. Are they able to convince? Is it good? And turning it into firm value. So marketing accountability is simply taking buckets of advertising and SEO and creative and content, things we build pretty well, and convincing the shareholders that they are adding to shareholder value. And that is a five-step equation. There's this pervading the belief that a Super Bowl ad can create firm value, GoDaddy, stuff like that. And people, there are five steps. An ad only enables a brand strategy which then changes customer behavior in only one of eight ways. Buy more, pay more, refer more, eat more, buy faster. It could, there's only eight things it can do. And if it does any of those eight things, buy more, pay more, then I've grown market share and margin. That's a business outcome. And if I can grow market share and margin and I run your customer lifetime value poll, if I'm, people are paying more, buying faster, and there's more of them, I think it's pretty clear and they stick around longer, those are four of the eight. My customer lifetime value gets better and I can translate that to share price. Once I translate that to share price, finance, the board, and the leadership start to understand the rationale there. But that's a five-step equation and it's a causal link. It's kind of like the Black-Scholes model of option pricing. It's mathematically possible but unfortunately, the people running growth are not, you know, chemical engineers or mathematicians. They want the visceral appeal that this ad made me a hero, you know. Um, so I think, you know, again, it, it's possible. It's the only way to measure marketing accurately. Uh, you don't have to get it perfect. Like you talked about attribution. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem in marketing measurement is perfection. Uh, a good enough uh, there's a, a professor, Mike Hansen, one of my idols, 
who basically said, you know, um, a, a well-documented hypothesis or a good enough estimate is a thousand times better than being precisely wrong. And I think in our world, you know, we're using analytics that are precisely wrong. For example, last touch attribution, to build on what you said, can be precisely wrong. It can point you in completely the wrong direction because it doesn't describe what actually happened. But our, our, our desire for analytics to round out to eight decimal places versus course correct, saying, I think I'm in the right place, um, that's the big problem. Uh, marketers have really screwed this up by demanding perfection. When you, if, if you just take four data sources, CRM, uh, content data, which is like dye in the bloodstream, email, and calendar data, and every company has these, in 30 days, you could string them together to create an 80% good enough model that can allocate resources, prioritize leads, measure customer value, measure customer health. And, and, and everyone's going to say, well, that's not a lot, Steve, but it's 80% better than what everyone on the planet Earth is doing today. So it's already got so frustrating. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think know. You know, the perfection is the enemy of attribution. So ultimately, attribution is necessary for resource allocation. It's a fool's errand. And personally, hanging out with most CMOs, you ever hear the term of FOFO? You know, of FOMO, fear of missing out? Oh, okay. Uh, the, the mm -hmm. real issue standing between attribution is FOFO, fear of finding out. They don't know either, and they don't want to be exposed. And that's the worst enemy of growth on the planet. Uh, and so that, that's a hot and loaded issue. Um, I've obviously got some passion around it, but it comes from sitting in rooms with some real knuckleheads who really are brilliant marketers, but they cannot allocate resources to growth. And then they whine all day long about why their budgets are dropping because they, they can't make the business case for, for what's probably a smart thing to do. So I think, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't hide behind these Super Bowl ads and this FOFO and then complain that your money's getting taken away. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, you know what? There's a lot of challenges and it comes to mind you know, all these elements of marketing spend, you know, even trade shows, which are, this is 2020, that's a little issue right now, but, but still though, I mean, there, there's, you know, it's, at the end of the day, you can either go, how much we spend on marketing, how much did we get back versus last year or last quarter, right? Um, what worked? Well, we don't know. Um, by the way, we have by the way, kind of different time, things, right? So, like the time horizon kills you. It's attribution drives you to short-termism. And Mike Hansen's again one of my idols. Yeah, yeah. So that killed the that killed the car industry in the eighties and nineties. Short term promotions destroy enterprise value. They give you a short term sales bump, but that's why you see these brands get collapsed. And there is nothing that tells me that long term investment makes sense. Uh, and that's what is creating. There's no attribution that describes that, and it's the fatal flaw in growth. So, including things like web infrastructure and this customer experience. I know digital customer experience is important, but is that a $1 problem, a million dollar problem, or a billion dollar problem? And that's the rub. It's fine to say, yeah, we're doing it. It's hard to say, is it $100 million or $500 million? And that's where the board's gotta get clarity. Um, sorry about that. No, no, don't apologize. There's another point about that, a sidebar really, that comes to mind in your experience is, this whole thing of branding versus direct response, right? Um, 
how to marry that, how to strategize that, because you said how, I mean, we all know how important brand is, but you know, depending on how much budget you have and how you identify brand and how much you spend on brand versus lead generation, things like that. And website optimization. Do you have any thoughts on that? Kind oh of my mix? God. I'm sure you do. You're a smart guy, Paul, because <laughs> you're getting, you're getting at the numb. Those are, if in property managed, those are diametrically exposed. For example, I'm working with firms who are in love with email uh, and they're tweaking taglines uh, to drive response uh, and they're destroying, not only, they're destroying assets. I'll tell you two assets they're destroying. One is your reputation and your ability to even have the email channel because you're gonna be marked as spam and de-whitelisted. And two, you're destroying your brand. Uh, you know, if you're optimizing a tagline for, um, for conversion, you're probably destroying your brand. And I'll give you an example. You know, you and I talked earlier about this COVID ambulance chasing, you know, where uh, people are just, you know, doing anything to convert. Uh, that's turning a lot of people off. I've had about 10 executives in the last two weeks that if I get an email that even mentions the C word right now in the context of a value proposition, I am shutting that down and turning that message off. And I know, you know, that's kind of obvious maybe, but what's happening is, they're never going to hear from that. When, when that person comes back at them, they're like, oh, you're, the, you're an ambulance chaser. You're a park bench lawyer. You're not the kind of guy that I respect or would be willing to pay more for. So I think there's a lot of these things in, in life right now. We talked also about SEO, but short-term response is often the enemy of value, long-term value creation. And to have the wisdom, insight, and frankly, balls to navigate those two, uh, and shut it down and say, I, I can live with a lower response rate. I cannot live with my brand being destroyed like Kraft. I think, I think Paul, your, your, your questions are hitting some visceral issues. So sorry to get passionate about that one too. No, no, that's what makes good radio, right? So yeah. we're like the Howard Stern of podcasting here. Controversial, but good stuff. Good stuff. Because you know what? The passion exists, right? And we all have passion in what we do, and that's what makes us successful. Um, by the way, the C word you mentioned, you know what my C word is? Convince. Convince, of course. <laughs> but by, by the Convince. way, <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I could not agree more. You know, brand is all about preference, and this, all this conversion stuff is all about convince. And look, let's agree. Growth is art and science. Salespeople are relationship geniuses. Marketers have to come up with great stuff. I'm not saying I'm a scientist, but that gets lost too. Sometimes we at SEO direct our things. And to your point, it's not convincing. I, I think your, your focus on convince is profound because it's getting lost in the sauce somehow. And uh, you know, I've seen things get funded. No one's asking the question, is it convincing? I mean, just think back to that Pepsi ad last year that got the entire Pepsi marketing department fired. But like, didn't somebody ask the question, is this convincing? And, 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 and I think by asking that question, you're grounding a lot of people, Paul. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of proverbs I've uh, created over the years. And another one I like to use with people is, you know, the essence of marketing is bring them in with persuasion, bring them, wait, let me start over again. Bring them in with creativity, bring them out with persuasion attract, sell, you know, that kind of thing. But that's a whole other podcast, but you think about that, right? Um, let's go to another question here. It's about revenue generation. 
you know, because we have a lot of different kinds of listeners here, SaaS companies, B2B manufacturers, CMOs, even maybe some retail or consumer. But what do you see as the biggest issues facing revenue generation now and, um, and before 2020? And can you separate those business categories and their needs or is there lots of similarities? But you what know, are your thoughts? You know, it, it going to sound simple, um, but it, it's teamwork. It's teamwork. So, you know, if we went out and looked at all the ads that, you know, Forrester and all those guys are putting out there, the, the buyer's journey, the new buyer reality, everybody knows at this point, Paul, you know, that buyers don't distinguish between sales, marketing, and service. You know, they talk about spaghetti bowl-like customer journeys. All that means is when I engage with somebody, I want an answer. Likely it's going to be digitally and likely it's got to be really, really fast. So if you step back and look at the revenue team, and in my mind, the revenue team is sales, marketing, and service. You know, marketing complains uh, that they're not part of the team. The service guys say, hey, I'm having 99% of the customer conversations and most of the sales are actually coming through me. And the sales guys are the sales guys. You know, they think that they do everything and in some cases they do. But when I say teamwork, I actually mean something pretty specific. I you know, at the highest level, um, everybody says we work as a team, but they really, really don't. Think about the notion of an MQL and a sales qualified lead. Marketing jumps up and down if sales deigns to give them credit for bringing in something that they're worthy of calling a lead. And what do they get? They get a pat on the back. Sales <laughs> closes that lead and they get a 20% commission. Now, I could make the argument that nine, marketing did 90% of that work. Why is sales getting 99% of the credit and really the compensation? And, my, and the reason they bought is probably because the service guy was doing a darn good job. So there's a lot of really smart executives out there asking the question, why am I paying these people these different things? If, if we agree 70% of the journey is driven by marketing, why are they getting 1% of the financial credit? Why isn't it all just one thing? And why isn't credit allocated to like lifetime value? So that's one common purpose and compensation. If people aren't paid the same, marketing's always gonna be whining about not getting credit. So guess what? Put everybody on a scorecard around customer lifetime value and pay them that way. That's a huge leap. The other one is structural teamwork. At this point and in the virtual world, you know, sales, marketing, and services are like I see of a linear, linear journey. They were coherent and sequential and they could exist, but now, in a digital world, release the strengths, constraints of geography, territory, and function. And the people in your organization can converge around opportunities. So structure is getting in the way of teamwork. Uh, and again, you think about a soccer team, football team, or any team you've ever played on. There's only one score. Everyone has a different role, but everyone's working towards that score. That really isn't the case of sales, marketing, and service. And it has to be. So if you ask me again, what's the one thing? The customer journey and the customer buying behavior has changed, um, has changed. Everyone knows that. And we've hit a tipping point. In fact, I'd like to give uh, Steve Salutis, uh, the head of sales at US Bank, for give, I'm stealing such a good quote, I gotta give him credit. We've had five years of transformation in the last five weeks. And think about it, customer behavior has moved from 70% of the journey and a good chunk of the transactions online to 100% online. And that's exposing all the weaknesses in the system. 
and that requires teamwork. And on one level, it's distressing. Our research, by the way, shows that sales productivity has dropped 20% as a result. But people are looking at it saying, it's giving me a blank canvas, kind of what you said, Paul. It's a blank canvas to say, why are these different functions? Why don't we just converge people around opportunities? We can see them analytically. We can get the right people on the phone. Why is it so hard? And so I think structurally enabling teamwork, and part of that has to be compensation. You know, if you know, the receivers are getting paid for catching the ball, but the running backs aren't getting paid for running the ball, how are they going to work together? And it's kind of, it's on one level, it's ridiculous. And obviously there are legacy systems and hundreds of years of selling experience behind that. But perhaps this uh, crisis will let us actually take a clean sheet of paper and, and get this thing working better. So teamwork is my answer. Uh, growth is a team sport. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I've written some articles on the topic, but I'm pretty passionate about it, but not in a kind of fluffy sense. Change the comp, change the coverage model, change the technology. You know, uh, you could do it. It's just people don't really want to do it. They will put a chief experience officer or a chief customer officer at the top, but boy, that's a band-aid. And I can guarantee that guy's getting fired in six months because oh, that's boy. an impossible <laughs> job. I mean, think about it. You, you, you put that person up there without compensation structure, you're setting them up to fail. It's a good start, but you got to really get at the core things. So teamwork, teamwork, and teamwork. Sorry about that, Paul, but you ask really good questions. Oh, jeez. Thank you. Um, things that come to my head, right? So um, just a couple more here. Um, if I did come to you as a CEO and I did ask you to, what do you think of my marketing strategy? How would you answer? Well, one answer is, is it convincing? But the, re the reality yes. is, is, here's exactly how I would answer. Because I've done this in the boardroom with a lot of smart people on my faculty. Uh, I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of the giants. Nothing I've said here, I didn't learn from some of the faculty on my thing. But here's what I would say. You just announced to Wall Street last week that you're going to drive $100 million in organic growth. And Wall Street said, basically, they puked on that number saying, you guys couldn't sell your way out of a paper bag. You couldn't innovate your way out of a paper bag. Where's that growth coming? And if you cannot back that growth down and say that growth is going to come from specifically margin, share, the customer lifetime value, reduced cost to sell or future option value. And then that margin is going to come from uh, more brand preference uh, and, and uh, higher value. Uh, and lifetime value is going to be driven by purchase size and consumption frequency. And I'm going to drive those things with these types of investments and programs. You're probably not going to make it. So the work back is if you want to drive $100 million of organic growth, you got to tell me, is it volume, share, lift, velocity, margin, customer lifetime value? Or are you going to dramatically reduce your cost to sell? But it's only going to be one of those seven or eight things. And if that's going to happen, are they going to buy more, pay more, refer more, buy faster, uh, you know, uh, a, 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 and respond faster. It's only one of eight things. And 90% of the people I talk to cannot take that growth number and back it into those things. If you can back it into those things, you can rationally and coherently measure and fund. And by the way, if you get it wrong, you can go back to Wall Street next quarter and said, hey, we thought this was going to happen. It didn't. We learned and we're adjusting. So this whole notion that we cannot causally connect investment, growth investment to growth, means we're never going to get it right. 
so I think, you know, that's what I would say to the board. Uh, you know, break that down for me. Uh, and they're intrigued, um, but I think that that's exactly, you got to take that growth number and work it back. And people don't want to do that uh, because it requires them to document belief systems and put hypotheses on paper. And for some reason, executive teams are really, really bad at that. So that's my answer. Yeah, the, well, <laughs> they're probably uh, has some anxiety over something that might be broken and they've been approved of strategy and you might find some flaws and gaps and they wonder, how come we didn't notice this, <laughs> right? Yeah, but the, <laughs> so. the, the, the flip side commentary is people actually agree. These are undocumented hypotheses. For example, if I'm with a retailer uh, who sells shaving cream or power tools, they know that shelf space, you know, Pepsi wouldn't be anywhere without shelf space. They know that. But that's like an intuitive belief system that informs programs, but they never put that assumption on paper. And, 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 and a lot of times they make irrational decisions or their budgets don't line up with what they believe. So certainly shelf space is super powerful. Anybody in retail knows that. Uh, but there isn't a concept of what's it worth and what do I have to invest to get it? And, 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 and what's good, and how, how do I measure that? That's what frustrates me. So I'll, I'll pause and let you keep talking. No, that's sorry. okay. Just a couple more here. Um, I love the passion. It is May 2, 2020 as we're recording this. So there is a crisis happening out there. And what advice do you have for leaders regarding revenue generation today? In crisis. Wow. So with the help of my wonderful faculty and the Sales Management Association, we've been able to interview several hundred uh, leaders. And we just I just gave a speech at the Sales Management Association Sales Productivity Conference. It's out there in the ether somewhere last week. And we shared some initial findings. And to your point, uh, it's very challenging time. Uh, and obviously, people are adapting. In the short term, we're seeing a 20% drop in overall sales productivity. And when people look at their pipeline, uh, they think, you know, 50, 25%, I think it was, of their acquisition is going out the window. The scariest thing is they think 75% of their customer relationships are at risk and 50% of their cross-sell is, uh, uh, is, is, is off the table. And certainly there's a lot of uncertainty about when the bottom is and when the next normal looks like. So against that backdrop, to answer your question, what should I do? Um, there are about five things, uh, but I think one of the most important things is visibility, 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 and visibility. And, and I say that because when we survey people are what are the most important things you need to be productive in a remote environment, in this environment, it was visibility into pipeline, visibility into seller activity, visibility into customer engagement, and visibility into account health. And think about it. We're in a new world. Now, maybe not in marketing, but in sales, where it's really, really hard to manage what I cannot see. I cannot see these customer conversations. I am not sitting in sales calls. And so using this customer engagement data, which, which they have in their organization to double that visibility. And as a byproduct, double engagement, speed, uh, and productivity uh, is going to be critical. I think that the watchword is you've got to double down probably only 12% of the people you call up are going to be ready to buy. Now, for the other, you know, 88%, boy, you better be empathetic. Uh, and if you look at what folks like U.S. Bank are doing, uh, they're using this as a great opportunity to uh, build relationships. 
but if I got to sell something, I better make sure that I'm zeroed in on those 12%. Uh, there are so many headwinds. It's so much harder that if you're not using your data to give you visibility and to zero in on those opportunities every single day, and this is possible. Anyone can do this within the next 30, 60 days. It's a matter of connecting some dots. That's my advice. And I think, you know, I can only, if I can only pick one thing, it's get better visibility. The bar, particularly in sales, is so low. I mean, obviously, you, you know, working with Google Analytics have great visibility. Uh, but the, you know, on the sales side of the world, which is the business end, these are the people actually having these painful conversations. Uh, visibility is shockingly low. Uh, and it's surprisingly easy to fix. Uh, so I think that is uh, my one word answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, wouldn't that be the role? I mean, obviously, like VP of sales to reassess goals and quotas. And I know it's not easy now, but, you know, existing customers, like segment your audience, custom messaging to those audiences, even winbacks, things like that. Um, can, I, have, can I comment on that? Yeah, sure. There's an issue there. Clock speed. You know, we've got so much legacy going on. We're running 21st century revenue teams with 20th century models, you know, invented by Albert, you know, uh, Alfred Sloan at GM, who lost a ton of market share, by the way, um, or his, his, his successors did. And I want to bring up clock speed because you're making a really, really good point, Paul. We set territories once a year. We adjust them quarterly. There is no technical reason in the world where you cannot adjust coverage and priorities on a daily or an hourly basis. It's just legacy overhead. We always did it this way. If you come to work and you had, you Paul generated four red hot leads, they're in market for 24 hours, they're gonna buy. If that doesn't get acted on in 24 hours, if, if that's not number one on my list as a sales guy when I come to the office every day, you know, we're, they're gonna miss that opportunity. When people are, the half-life of lead is much shorter than people give it credit for. And so my point would be, why are we adjusting on a calendar year basis when we should be just dusting on an hourly or a daily basis? And it is technically possible, you know, using some you know, revenue enablement technology to walk into the office every day and see my top 10 based on immediate leads, prioritizations, bankruptcy announcements or whatever, versus stay with the plan and pound away. And so I think that clock speed thing beggars the mind, Paul, because there's no technical or even physical reason why we can do this. Yes, certainly coaching and account reviews, and there are some management constraints to readjusting the territories, but those are hard but not difficult to overcome. And I think that notion of clock speed on making these adjustments is the biggest difference maker. Uh, and I wanted to bring that up because uh, it's kind of shocking to me sometimes. Yeah, well, you know what? It's all about leadership. And um, I'll just leave it at that. Well, you know, and there's also leaders have to lead. <laughs> you know, we're at a tipping point. There's a school of thought out there that, you know, to my point, that never waste a crisis. And we've had five years of innovation in five weeks. I think a lot of these things are going to fall over to the other side now, just like 9-11 or, or, uh, or, or 2008. I think people are going to come to the other side of the mountain and, and people are going to start asking those questions. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of pain to force that. Uh, so I think hopefully, uh, and again, there's a, I, I don't want to minimize 
the people suffering this thing, but hopefully some good comes out of it and that people will actually just push some common sense solutions over the line and we'll leave the 20th century commercial model behind, finally. Yeah. Um, Stephen Diorio, great conversation. You're at the Revenue Enablement Institute. And what is that again? Uh, it's a uh, it's a think tank. Uh, it's a commercial think tank. We want to solve the problem, and it's profess it's academics, leading practitioners, and world class experts uh, that solve five big problems: leadership, teamwork, common purpose, the incentive thing we talked about, insights and visibility, and getting a better return on technology. Getting uh, revenue engines to fire on three cylinders instead of two. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's really meant to influence board members to make those big decisions, not to optimize tactical programs. Uh, and again, I'm probably the, the stupidest person in the Institute. Uh, so, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it will really no. assemble some of the best talent. <laughs> That's revenueenablement.org. All right. Well, Thanks for joining me today. This is just great. I love the conversation. It's, I love the passion you would bring. It's awesome. Call it frustration. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, there's a lot of issues out there where, you know, everything, every day something is different. Watch the news, but maybe a little bit every day. And, uh, but be proactive. Think of your people, think of your business, think of survival, think of what's next in the next hour, the next day, whatever it is, be a leader. Thank you, Stephen. Thank and you. I really enjoyed it. It's great. This is Paul Mosenson, Fix to Convince Marketing Optimization. Thanks for listening. Look forward to another podcast coming up soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to get more marketing optimization insights. Fix the convince.